Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you surely man? <laughs> it's the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast with all my Devin Ken early here with me. How you doing, Al? I'm doing all right. I'm intrigued, I must say, by the tone of coverage of Manchester United season under Louis van Gaal so far, mm-hmm. as compared to Liverpool season under Brendan Rodgers. Liverpool have been a total disaster again, as, as you will have read, and Possibly written at times, I don't know. Uh, Brendan Rodgers. Brendan Rodgers himself, of course, uh, a bit of a bullshit merchant. You know, being found out, Luis Suarez gone, and suddenly their whole season falling to shreds. But Louis van Gaal, I mean, what a guy. This man brought a goalkeeper on yeah. at the end of extra time in a World Cup. This is the tactical genius we're talking about. That's right. And now he's, um, what, he's riding high at the top of the league, as far as I know, uh, with Manchester United. He's 10th. Oh, oh, 10th? He's 10th with, with, uh, with 13 points from 10 games. Oh. But that's behind. That's that means he's doing worse than Brendan Rodgers. He's actually behind. He's one point behind Brendan mm. Rodgers' Liverpool, who who lost again on the weekend. I just think Van Hal is getting a lot of slack at the moment. That slack might be tightened at some point. Yeah, you do. If they keep losing and drawing games. Well, this is why uh, clubs like Manchester United need to appoint increasingly need to appoint coaches who have got uh, a track record of success, yeah. uh, because. Uh, a, a manager who hadn't, you know, won the Champions League and allegedly invented modern European football would not be getting away with this. Uh, would not be getting away with these results in quite the same way. I mean, it's because people have faith that Louis Van Gaal is a man who is going to be able to impose um, order on this on this uh, mess. There was the faith in Louis. I mean, Van Gaal. we, we, you know, in, in fairness, we've been talking, or I've been talking, the last couple of weeks about sort of evidence of promise in Manchester United's game. You know the fact that they were able to claw it back against Chelsea, even against West Brom. You know, I thought it was was kind of promising, um, and against Manchester City, maybe they were hobbled a little bit by the by the early red card. I mean, Van Hal was quite harsh on Smalling afterwards. I mean, he made no bones about it. It's his fault. <laughs> he pinned the blame directly on Chris Smalling for that one. Um, but you know, okay, you can't you can't just forget all that just because they've lost against the City. But I do think it was it was a disappointing result for them considering. 
the state of Manchester City at the moment. There's a huge. There's always a massive excitement when a club spends a lot of money. Uh, mm. Whether even if it had still been Alex Ferguson there spending that money, whoever it was David, if David Moyes had managed to get his ducks in a row along with the club and spent quite that amount, even when in fact even when Moyes bought Mata, mm. despite the fact that that wasn't actually he didn't do anything as such. He just he just took a lot of the money from the club and spent it on this one player. Mm. That was one of the few bright spots of the season. It was seen to be that way at the time. If you remember, the, there was a bit of excitement. Maybe maybe Mata can dig us out of this this yeah. particular hole. I think maybe uh, there has been a certain element that everyone has been. And myself, all football fans included, get blinded when there are these uh, all these amazing attacking signings made. Uh, allied to the fact that, we, as we know, Van Hal was always going to benefit by comparison to his predecessor. Mm. All, all those, all those, all those ingredients seem to be uh, being mixed together to to make for a rather easy ride for Van Hal. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, the the other thing, I mean, the big thing that Van Hal has in his favour, as compared to Moyes, is that when Moyes took over, they were actually the league champions. It seems a long time ago now. That they were the Premier League champions, uh, and everybody assumed, well, that's the kind of that's the kind of potential that the squad has. Whereas I don't think at the beginning of this season anybody thought that there was a potentially championship-winning group no. of players. Maybe, maybe on the first of September, there was some Manchester United fans thinking, "Hang on a second, you know, we've just signed a, a bunch of really good players. I mean, really good attacking players. Of course, what it turns out that they have is that is a is a group of attacking players that can't actually get on the field together. You know, they can't, you, even if they were all fit, you couldn't play them all. And then they've got one of the weaker defences in the league, even if the players in the in the defence are all fit, which they aren't, because we've just seen Marcus Rocco, the, the main defensive signing Louis Van Hal made, destroy his shoulder, and he's going to be out for... Well, a dislocated shoulder can be can be three months, can be longer. Sometimes they can pop it back in and hope everything is okay. But you know what often happens then is another dislocated shoulder quite soon after, and a, and a shoulder surgery that leaves you out for six months. Also, I'm not I'm no expert in this field, but popping it back in does that not need to be done pretty much straight away? Oh, yeah, I'm sure they I'm sure they have done it. But the point is that they can they can sort of you know there's different ways to to regard a shoulder injury like that. Um, there's a careful way, and then there's a, we really don't have anyone else to play at the back, Marcos, so if you wouldn't mind uh, just gritting your teeth. Uh, and maybe that's what maybe that's what they're going to end up doing, but obviously it's, it's, it then becomes a risk of, of re-entering the shoulder. So, um, you know, with this with this group of players, I mean, it's one thing to say, well, you know, they've got Madoff, Alcao, Rooney, Van Persie, you know, Di Maria... But of course, they they can only really play half of those guys at any one time, and uh, you know even if they're all fit, which which currently they're not. And then at the back, you've got to, you've got to play. I mean, two nineteen year olds and two midfielders at the back um, for the for the last uh, hour of the game, I suppose, against against Manchester City. Uh, the only thing that's saving them at the moment is the fact that nobody has really managed to burst ahead in the race for fourth assuming that is that Southampton are going to hit the skids at some point because at the moment Southampton are up there and, and looking really strong when well balanced kind of a bit like Everton often were under under Moyes or last season under Martinez you know a side that's capable of, of beating most of the opponents they come up against and seems to be quite formidable I mean it's just that Southampton haven't Southampton did have a good season last year so there, so there is an element of experience in that side that you wouldn't often uh, fine. I mean, everybody everybody expects that they're not going to be there 
come the end of it. But at, this, at the moment, they're, they're a good distance ahead of these teams that did expect to be in, in the race for fourth. Southampton, one of the many, many teams ahead of Manchester United at the moment. Uh, unfortunately for United fans, I do, we will get back to that with John Bruin, ESPN's John Bruin, a little bit later on. And we'll also be talking to Emmett Malone. He's going to pop in the studio to chat about the FAI Cup final won by St. Pat's. Uh, they won the league last year, so you would think that maybe the Cup wouldn't be anywhere near as big a deal. Uh, that would tend to be the case, maybe in a lot of countries, but it depends on a club's history. And they had lost seven in a row dating back to, not seven in a row, but the last seven finals they've been in, dating back to 1961. They've been beaten. There's a litany of sorrow, uh, of sort of bad luck stories around some of those finals, but they finally got their hands on the silverware. And we'll chat to Emmett about that in a little while. Right now, though, it's time for Kennedy's Report on Sport. So, um, the best moment of the weekend, football-wise, at least in English, English football terms, I think was, no doubt about it, Owen, Oscar's goal against <laughs> Oscar's goal against Queens Park Rangers is one of the best goals I've seen in a long time. This was not just the little kind of run through and, and pass by Fabregas, which was uh, which was sweet enough, but the finish by Oscar is just ridiculous. It was a moment where you thought the cameras haven't done this goal justice. There actually are not enough cameras in the ground. This deserved a better um, uh, to to be recorded uh, in. You know, it's sort of uh, this. It just didn't quite, quite it, match it, up. It, it deserved the, the Zidane movie treatment. Exactly. You know, there needed to be cameras there with different frame rates. It was kind of a cinematic moment, out of keeping, according to everybody there, uh, with the quality of the game. The thing about this goal that, that impressed me possibly the most was the way in which the goalkeeper who conceded it, Rob Green, spoke about it with in such with such awe. Uh, I could have had two dives and I wouldn't have got to that one, <laughs> said Rob Green, who I suppose by by praising the finish of Oscar um, does sort of he doesn't he doesn't need to say look it would have been possible for anyone to say that, um, but he talked about it. He said you know and and, and what people don't realise is that the wind was blowing that way as well. So he's actually used the wind as well as the spin of the ball to take that one around me and in off the post, you know. So just in case anybody missed that detail. Yeah, if anyone thought I had a chance of saving that, um, they, they were. It was, it was brilliant and, and kind of showed you the class that the Chelsea team has. But Jose Mourinho, not impressed. Um, if you looked at him even when the, as the goal went in, he had this angry face on and afterwards, he, he reveals why this is. Everybody knows how much I feel connected to this club and the fans, says Mourinho. And you're wondering, what? okay, what's he going to say now? I mean, this, um, But at this moment, it's difficult for us to play at home because playing here is like playing in an empty stadium. Uh, he says um, the crowd essentially is asleep. Uh, the man responsible for the lights was in the same mood as the crowd. Everybody was sleeping. He took 20 minutes to understand it was dark. Um, but I took 30 minutes to understand the because he, he turned the lights on after 20 minutes. Kind of sorry about that. It seems like you've been you've kind of been um, puttering around in the dark down there. <laughs> we should shed a little light on this. Oscar scored, and then Jose Mourinho understood. Oh, I realized. Whoa, this stadium is full. Good because people started making a bit of noise. You know, Oof. so I'm not quite sure. It's a little bit sarky what, about his own staff what? and. Uh, yeah, I think the idea here is that we, we've been we've just spent the last minute talking about that rather than the fact that Chelsea, aside from this moment of genius by Oscar, were really not very good and only won the game thanks to what looked to me a really dodgy penalty won by Eden Hazard by running into the box, flinging himself against a Queen's Park Rangers player and sprawling delightedly to the ground. 
uh, as though they go, well, you know, I've got, I've got myself a penalty. I mean, he seemed to almost, uh, he, 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 had, he was raising an arm, I'm sure probably to draw the attention of the referee to what had happened as he fell. But the way that he landed, it reminded me of that famous uh, Brian Laudrup celebration for Chelsea where he, he uh, scored a goal and then ran and slid and sort of lay on one side, resting his, his head on his... For Rangers, was it? No, no, for Chelsea. Oh, for Chelsea, okay, sorry. He played for Chelsea quite briefly, Brian Laudrup. Totally forgotten about that. Um... <laughs> Did he actually do that one for Chelsea? Or he definitely did it for Denmark. But maybe there's a Chelsea player who who did it. Maybe I'm getting it mixed up here. Maybe it was Petrescu or something like that. Sorry, I've muddied the waters here. Can you just go with Brian Laudrup? Did the same. In your head there, he, yeah. he 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 slid he slid to a halt on the ground, sort of resting his head, uh, you know, elbow on the ground, resting his head there in his hand with his, with his other arm just raised, sort of in this casual stance. And that's what Eden Hazard reminded me of after that. You know, he knew that he got the penalty. Um, he knew the referee was going to give it. I, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it. I thought he'd won the penalty there, Owen. Uh, and maybe Jose Mourinho didn't really want. It. Maybe he prefers to talk about the lights and the crowd than the fact that mm, this really, you know, against one of the poorer teams in the league, Chelsea had not quite hmm. hit the sort of level they're supposed to hit. You've been singing the praises of Alexis Sanchez all day, Ken. Well, I mean, Sanchez is now in the kind of form that you you're really wondering how. I mean, he's, he's okay. The question of him adapting to English football—that's not a—that's not a problem. What do you, what do you think? What I think he's doing is demonstrating that he's a better player than he appeared to be at Barcelona when he was re- relegated to this um, sort of uh, peripheral role. He's there as a kind of, um, you know, he's there as a to sort of car- carry water for Lionel Messi. Um, and actually, he's when when he's given a more central role as Arsenal have given him, and the kind of freedom to really go where his, his initiative takes him on the field. He is an absolutely, he's an almost unstoppable player. Um, I, I mean, the best player in the league so far this season, I think. Um, and Arsenal suddenly have a, have a look to them, which is quite unfamiliar. I think when you think about the somewhat limp and somewhat predictable Arsenal teams of the last few seasons, I think the big test for Arsenal is going to be in a couple of weeks when they play against Manchester United. Arsenal haven't beaten Man United in a serious match in nearly seven years. No, six years. It's 2008. The last time they beat them in a a real match uh, was Samir Nasri scoring a couple of goals. You might remember that game. I think Raphael scored the other goal. It was a 2-1 win for Arsenal at the Emirates. They have beaten them once since, but I think that was after... Manchester United had already won the league, so it was one of those end of season. Oh, we're all hungover. Uh, in this instance, um, I think they have a chance of of doing that. I mean, it's not the next game uh, for United that will be Crystal Palace, which again is not necessarily going to be an easy game uh, for them. But then that Arsenal game is going to tell us a lot because Arsenal are a team desperate, I think, to with this feeble record that they have against all the sort of larger sides. Um, really desperate to, score, to change that and I think with Sanchez in this kind of form I can finally see that ending and yeah. Welbeck as well you it's know? funny the way you just described the, his style of play because that's what he in the World Cup he was I was looking at him in the World Cup going this isn't this isn't the guy I mean, he's playmaking he's all over the place he's practically throwing tackles in yeah. whereas Barcelona is largely sort of you know, foraging up front, um, carrying a little bit of water there for Leo Messi. Messi did, didn't like him, you know. Uh, doing a little bit. I mean, he, and I don't think he was in any way a failure for Barcelona. No, he wasn't. He was. He was excellent for yeah, them. But but he but he 
didn't look like he had quite the footballing ability that he that he looks like here. Yeah, you don't you you you're, you don't get to show. I don't think the full. Uh, so this is why it's going to be interesting to watch Suarez. You know, Suarez and him have effectively swapped places. You know, um, as in Sanchez has gone from being, you know, one of uh, Lionel Messi's little helpers to being the central attacking player or the the kind of attacking focal point for a big Premier League side. Which in which all the players look up to him. Well, they look down to him, but you know they, he's he's clearly the top player in their in their team. Whereas uh, Suarez is now in that. Oh, you know, was that good enough for you, Lionel Messi? I mean, Messi didn't like Sanchez. Maybe Suarez will will be luckier that way. Maybe they've got more in common. I don't know. Mm. But you could tell. I mean, imagine you're playing with the best player in the world, and you feel that he doesn't really think you're much of a player. You feel that's that he doesn't really have much confidence in in you. Mm. It's going to be difficult. It's it's a, it's a tricky one to deal with. You, you know? do have to find a way to adapt, if that's the right word. Where, not a lot, not a lot of guys haven't. I mean, it melted Ibrahimovic's Abraham, no, head. No, but I'm looking at say for say Karen Benzema at Real Madrid. I mean, it can't be easy in ways to play in a team with Cristiano Ronaldo. Well, every, unless you unless you're smart enough and find a way to. To find a role for yourself where you can still score enough goals to justify your role as a striker, but also actually just get out of the way there quite a bit. Yeah. So both physically and in terms of an ego, just li- vacate all space and let Ronaldo in there to score his goals. I which think, Benzema done very well. I think that Ronaldo is, is easier to play with. Than Messi. Yeah. I think he's, I mean, I think he is, he is, uh, he's more, um, what's the word now? He's a little bit more conventional in the way that he behaves. You know, he's not a. He, I think he's a bit easier to understand, and I think he, he, you know, Messi sometimes seems to have a quite arbitrary way of relating to the players around him. You know, you mean uh, verbally or in his? I mean, it's sometimes that's not quite easy to know where he's coming from. I mean, the, the big point that they say about Messi, he doesn't talk. Yeah, he never says anything. What's what's he thinking? I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, they know he's. They, they know. They know he wants something, but no one, no one knows what it is that he wants, you know. Um, whereas with Ronaldo, I think Ronaldo is a bit more of an open book, you know. It's easier maybe for the, for the players around him to understand what, he, what he's looking for them to do. Whereas oftentimes with Messi, the, the only time he's, he's talking to these guys is when he's uh, lashing them out of it in front of a full uh, new camp, you know. And, and several of them had this, you know, David Villa. David Villa had that problem, you know, Messi taking him to task. The best player in the world is, is having a go at you in front of 90,000 people. That's a bit awkward. If you remember when David Villa scored against Barcelona for Atletico Madrid when he played them, he didn't do one of those non-celebration celebrations. You know what I mean? He was quite—he was quite happy to have scored that goal. Same with Zlatan when he did it. You know, I mean, these are—I think—I think Alexis Sanchez is is better off for being out of what what wasn't really a an environment that was working very well for him. And I think at Arsenal, he's really—he kind of feels the confidence of everyone around him. Uh, he feels, you know, I'm, these guys really rate me here. And I think it's kind of almost turning him into twice the player. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's great, really, for Arsenal to see this, uh, to see the way this is going. Now, Brendan Rodgers. Well, well uh, you know, they, they've obviously got this other situation where, where the guy who was doing, doing what Sanchez is doing for Arsenal now has, has left, and they're, and they're suddenly left with nothing. I mean, the problem uh, that Liverpool have is not, I don't think... That, so much in defence is this is a, this is the thing that they've had. This is the thing that they, the, that hasn't really changed in the last three seasons. The thing that's changed is they no longer know how to attack. They can't score goals. They don't know what they're doing. Um, 
the, the attacking players just so uh, disconnected. You know, this is this is supposed to be Brendan Rodgers' area of expertise. You know, he's saying it again. Uh, he's saying it again today about how he's a. I'm a creative and attacking coach. You know, um, you almost shouldn't have to say that. I mean, no, it's the kind of thing you let other people say about you rather than rather than say about yourself. But you know, who are we to who are we to question? Uh, I mean, Brendan Rodgers has done has done pretty well. It works for him, you know. To say, uh, I saw an interview that he did with Des Kelly a little while ago, and he said, uh, "Oh, this club, you know, what a club to work for." He said, um, European Cup, sitting there in the corridor. You know, that's what you see when you come in to work here. You know, a, a European Cup, you know, the European Cup's just sitting there. You know, that's what this club means. And and for a lot of coaches, you know, that might be that might be, might, might be an intimidating thing. It might be intimidating for a lot of coaches. But for me, it's a massive inspiration. You know what I mean? A lot of coaches might might be intimidated by that, but not me. <laughs> yeah. So this is a, you know, and, and, and who are we to deny? This man is was manager of the football club at the age of 39, having, you know, not had a playing career uh, of note or won anything as a coach. So, you know, going around, what's, what's the point of waiting for others to blow your trumpet when really, who else is going to blow your trumpet for you? Stephen Hunt wrote uh, his column yesterday in the Sunday Independent about precisely that. Well, really, it was about the disconnect between the Rodgers he sees. It was a very complimentary piece towards Rodgers, and he said there's a disconnect between the Rodgers who... Just straight-talking private Rogers. Yeah, and then there's kind of slightly bullshitty... Um, public Rogers. Public Rogers. And Hunt said in his dealings with him at Reading, Rogers arrived in, Hunt was surplus requirements and he was injured at the time. Well, Hunt, Hunt was going to leave as well. Yeah, Hunt was, uh, Hunt was essentially saying he'd, he'd stayed a season in the championship that was it. to help yeah. Reading get promoted. They hadn't got promoted. And he wanted to leave. So he wanted to leave. And, but Ro- he, I think he had an injury issue as well. And Rogers, rather than flogging him at that stage, selling him on. Rogers allowed him to, he said, listen, just train away here, get yourself fit and we'll sell you then, which Hunt, in, in the cutthroat world of professional football, a manager doesn't necessarily have to do that. He was quite impressed with that. Mm. And he was quite impressed with, the, really impressed with Rogers generally. Uh, he said that, he was essentially kind of saying, look, don't take too much notice of the stuff that Rogers says publicly. But we haven't played under Brendan Rogers, Ken, so we have to go by the public utterances as well as what we hear about him in private. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they've, you know, Sturridge is, is, is an issue, the absence of Sturridge as well. But, you know, if Sturridge would really be making a difference in these games, it's 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 hard to know. It's it's a case of, you know, the guy's not there, so what can you say? I mean, it seems to me he did well in this sidekick role, has yet to prove that he can graduate to the full, you know, leader leadership role. But um, the question at the moment, the, the interesting one is Stephen Gerrard, uh, confirming that he's gonna, he's not going to retire, um, but Liverpool haven't offered him a contract. Therefore, he may have to go elsewhere. Now, I wonder how that would make a lot of Liverpool fans be. No, that's, there's something just wrong with that. That's you know, how could Stephen Gerrard, right at the very end of his career, mess up his one club legend by you know going to play for someone else? Oh no, there's something instinctively feels wrong about that. At the same time, I mean, absolutely, they they should they should let him go, don't you think? Oh no, you're you're you well, crinkle dry there on your like. No, oh. what I'm what I'm thinking is, Frank Lampard 
Okay, we some one club man, but he's very much a Chelsea man. He's in this slightly strange situation where he's playing for their title rivals, Manchester City. But I don't Manchester City, a club with which Stephen Gerrard is linked in, in today's papers. Manchester City interested in signing. But Gerrard. the way you describe it there is that if he was to leave, there'd be almost an outcry, particularly for a Premier League rival, there'd be an outcry by Manchester by Liverpool fans. Whereas with Chelsea, I think Mourinho's raised kicked up a bit of a fuss, and I could be wrong about this. Chelsea fans listening might be telling me I'm completely wrong, but I don't notice any major hostility from Chelsea. I think he still very much it will be remembered as a Chelsea guy for as as Stephen Gerrard would be as well so yeah. is it the end of the world to go and play for somebody I, else if you're close well, no I, I don't think it's I don't think it's the end of the world uh, I mean there's all kinds of options I mean, remember the option that Lampard originally took was to go to New York and this is why I think Mourinho is actually annoyed because Lampard came and scored a goal against Chelsea you know he actually did some damage he's the only player really to have done any damage to Chelsea so far and it's Lampard and Mourinho didn't like that um, but you know He's quite happy, I suppose, for Lampard to be off in New York, where it doesn't really matter. You know, he's he's out of out of sight, out of mind, can't do us any harm there. He doesn't like the idea that he's playing for Manchester City. Mm-hmm. But, you know, could you see Gerrard moving Manchester City and, and, and doing any damage? You know, maybe you could see him fitting into the Manchester City midfield as it currently stands, because it's not, it's not great at the moment. You know, there's, there's Fernando and Fernandinho competing to see who can be worse. Yaya Toure is, is going around looking pretty exhausted. Maybe Jared could fit in there, but you couldn't really. Could you see, for instance, his old Jared following the path of his old um, partner in that midfield, Xabi Alonso, who left Real Madrid, um, and he's what Alonso's thirty three this year, I think thirty three, possibly thirty two. Uh, Alonso goes to Bayern Munich and is promptly voted man of the match in a string of Bundesliga games, and has becomes the key man in Bayern Munich's team. No. Well, I don't think... Well, Could you see him going to a high-level team and improving them in the way that Alonso has done now? Or more likely, maybe going to, to a team... You know, Manchester City can afford to, to have a highly-waged substitute such as a Frank Lampard or a Steven Gerrard, you know, to come on and maybe, I don't know, take a couple of free kicks. I don't know. There's, if there's enough of a physical capability left there, you would think that the... The player can be re-energized also. I mean, Stephen Gerrard has had a lot of weight in his shoulders for many years. Maybe he'd like the idea of being a slightly more of a, I don't want to say a bit part player at Manchester City, but... Um, maybe he could go to Chelsea. Of a central role. Maybe, maybe you know, Lampard goes to City, Gerrard goes to Chelsea. Maybe it's not too late <laughs> after all. And it is, it is notable, I think, that the, the rest of that interview uh, was largely concerned with his uh, fitness regime. Uh, his extremely exacting fitness regime. So it was almost like a, it wasn't quite like Michael Owen's brochure that the agent put out about Michael Owen a few years ago when he was looking for a club, um, sort of detailing all his achievements and showing pictures of him in the gym and that. But it, was, it wasn't far off. You know, it was kind of saying a lot of miles in the clock, but still in incredible uh, working order. Uh, and this, the, so, but, you know, uh, the point is that Brendan Rodgers has made this, uh, he says, uh, there's, there's no sentimentality here. Uh, but both on and off the field as a leader and a captain, I want to ensure that Stephen is very much part of this second curve we're on in terms of group development. The second curve meaning uh, it all begins again. The circle, the eternal circle of renewal, uh, transition, uh, and then further renewal and further (laughs) transition appears to be underway. There's a second curve. I assume this curve, this second curve is, is another upward curve of development and not a downward uh, curve of of decay. Well, no, Brendan Rodgers couldn't contemplate anything that's not 100% positive, I don't think. I just don't, I just don't really see where he fits in 
anymore because you know you've you know the the match against Newcastle. Uh, I didn't really see him influence the, the attacking play in any positive way. I did see a, f- a few moments when Newcastle broke in behind the midfield. This is the area where, you know, a top-class defensive midfielder is going to be getting across and snuffing out an attack. But Newcastle players are running straight out of the rules defence. You know, I don't see... So, if you can't play there, you know, he, he's he's kind of played to little effect behind the striker, the sort of position he used to play. Can't really do that anymore either. Where are you going to put him in? Mm. You know, Rogers talks about his influence on the changing room. I do think it's a bit of an overused phrase at this stage. You know, who has that? Well, hang on, we saw him doing his um, changing room. We saw him doing his big speech after the wasn't the Man City game last year. This doesn't slip. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it did slip. It, unfortunately, that's the kind of thing that sometimes happens. But look, that's enough about enough about that. Yep. Um, we do. We were watching that Bayern Dortmund game on, which I think was a fairly impressive. Uh, Spectacle overall. Yeah, unbelievable. I was quite taken by Pep Guardiola in particular and his, I don't know how many people watched the game, but his uh, his sideline antics. Mm. I mean, the guy's getting more intense about football. Yeah. At one stage... An absolute mania. Oh, at one stage, well, he's bringing Frank Ribéry on as a sub. Now, I think every sports psychologist in the world would say a player just needs, ideally, maybe one instruction. Mm. Maybe two, but don't be cramming too much stuff into his head. Poor Ribéry looked like he was in the middle of a, a leaving cert exam or something. Just... Yeah stressed out by Guardiola issuing a stream of instructions into him gesticulating wildly as he went and this was quite eyes typical. bulging out of his, his <laughs> yeah. skull you know uh, and this is and this is the way that he well you know it means a lot it means a lot to him it was an important game and a really depressing game for Dortmund who were playing reasonably well I mean they weren't controlling the game in, in the slightest but they scored a brilliant goal so the goal that they it, it took an amazing goal to get through this sort of smothering Bayern defence and it was it was a really classic kind of counter-attacking move. A couple of flicks in midfield and then a racing down the right wing. Beautiful ball over and a great header by Royce. Uh, so 1-0 to Dortmund. And it stayed that way until they made a mistake and Lewandowski scored. Of all the players, it's Lewandowski who hammers the ball in, punishing a, a, a slight mistake. And uh, then they then Bayern get a soft enough penalty. And it's 2-1. And it's Lewandowski. And Bayern have won because they're the team that were able to take Lewandowski away from you because they've got so much money. And all your best efforts have come to nothing. And then at the end, Lewandowski comes over to try to hug Royce, his old teammate. And Royce just refused to acknowledge him. It was quite, a, it was, it was quite an interesting moment. I mean, Lewandowski's the usual, uh, you know, bring it in here to the Big Bear. And Royce just, first of all, he looks kind of disgusted. Then he, he averts his head and keeps his arms down by his side as... Lewandowski sort of tries to go into this awkward hug, and I was like, "Okay." Royce evidently giving the signal that no, I don't really think it's okay what you did. I know, it's, I know, we're all professionals and that, but why did you have to go here? Well, that's really interesting in the context of the pre-game salutes because oh yeah, it was incredible. These guys look closer than brothers. It was was it uh, was it Gutze who was no no it was Lewandowski who ran a line of uh, all the Dortmund players are lined up. Mm. Bayern Munich are second out. This is all within the tunnel. And Lewandowski is being treated like by the rest of them anyway. Maybe Royce is the only guy who is then, standing up to this. By, by the, a long there is a difference there that that's in the tunnel, I suppose. Maybe Royce was being a little bit clever with his mm. with his reaction. Not that clever if you didn't realise that a lot of people everything is on TV. Yeah, there. <laughs> that was probably being beamed out to the fans in the stadium as well. I would imagine, given how 
how slick the, the facilities look there. Yeah, it did look pretty sick. I mean, you've got lots of teammates there from obviously the German national team and that. It did look a little bit convivial in that tunnel, I have to say. But then once they got out there, it was... Uh, no, it was a good, good amazing game. Uh, Quality-wise, it was, it was superb. Dortmund yeah. just slowly retreating further and further into their shell until the inevitable couple of goals from Bayern Munich. Yeah. One more very quick story. Martin O'Neill baring his teeth. Just Martin O'Neill, he doesn't care what you say about him, but he will destroy you. <laughs> <laughs> if you, if you he re, he doesn't care about criticism, but he will nail you back in response to criticism. I couldn't care less. I really could not, genuinely couldn't care. That's Martin O'Neill talking about criticism. I don't take what Eamon says seriously. Absolutely not for 25 years now. Eamon that's, Dunphy, obviously. That's Martin O'Neill talking about Eamon Dunphy. It's people's jobs to do it. It's my job to be the manager. I have to seem to justify everything, though. It's, I'm not here to justify selection. My justification is trying to get results. Um, so he makes the point that our one-all draw in Germany, regardless of our side play, wasn't bad in comparison to, say, Brazil's 7-1 defeat against the same team at home in the World Cup semi-final. Wasn't bad, was it? Um, seriously, Eamon, you must be kidding. Seriously, says Martin O'Neill. But then he goes, Eamon wrote a great book on football and a lovely diary... <laughs> a lovely diary. This is only a game he's, he's referring to. But a great, a great book in football. He's, he's written a couple of books in football. I mean, he's, he's written the Matt, Bus, Matt Busby autobiography. I'm not sure which one. It sounds like he's just referring to only game here. A lovely diary, only game. And the reason I thought it was a great little book was because it was around my time. And when he talks about Nottingham Forest being a good side, but not that good, absolutely spot on. We were all in the second division at that time where Eamon never came out of. Says, Ouch. Yeah. Um, so there you go. Uh, it was, of course, Martin O'Neill, um, as he reminded Patrick Vieira and Fabio Cannavaro, came right out of that second division like a runaway freight train, won the English League title and then two European Cups. I like the way Martin O'Neill stays above the criticism. And captained his country at the World Cup as well, just in case you've forgotten stays that. Stays above the criticism, right up until the point that he dives right into the criticism and has the go back. Yeah. That's the end of, is that the end of it? Yeah, just a minute, he, he mentioned the reason why he played Walters wide and McGeady in the middle. Um, it was something that didn't really come up in the discussion of that uh, when the RT panel were criticising the decision. It was essentially that he, he had David Myler playing right back. He said, with the best will in the world, he'll do it with the best will in the world. Um, but there's only certain things he can do. He needed protection. I needed someone as stubborn as John Walters who'll give me that strength there and still try and get in the box if we're getting crosses in through McLean. I felt Aiden could play in that position. For the first 20 minutes, it looked alien to him, but he, he grew into it. That's the end. That is the end now of Kennedy's report on sport. I knew the place. Clough, as he calls me Rabbi, didn't know them. He said to me, what can you do that the boss hasn't done? You, the boss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. But there's no way to win it better. Why it's not? Lo- no, 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 no. But that's the only hope we're, we're, I've got. We're doing, we're doing lots for much. And then, but that, well, and I can only look straight. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Clough, as he calls me, Ravi. Good luck. Now that might that might be you know aiming for utopia, and it might be might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. All right, well, St. Pat's have finally got uh, their hands on another FAI Cup this uh, this weekend. Just gone yesterday. Emma Malone was there to see it. Emmett, this is their um, their eighth go at it since the last time they won it in yeah. in 1961, which is 
well, an incredible statistic. It's, it's gone one of the now. great, great, great kind of unlikely runs. You know, it's like one of those things, like all the kind of weird things that have to happen for evolution to be true. You know, uh, there seem to be so many stories, uh, you know, as to why Pats hadn't won a cup in the meantime. And uh, I mean, there were, yeah, there were seven previous misses in um, in finals. I mean, in the last two against Derry, one of them, they were hot favourites as they had been this year. And they, they over those two finals, they led on five different occasions. And yet, you know, Derry kept uh, pegging them back. And down the years, there's been, you know, previous rounds, finals, you name it, uh, so many hard luck stories. So, um, so it's, and, and you could see that yesterday. You could see it in the fans of the club. You could see it in Brian Kerr. You yeah, great photo yeah, in the front yeah. of the Irish Times. Yeah, Brian, Brian was giving it socks when they, when they scored the second goal. So he's not involved in any way, in, 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 no, in any no, form of way, doing, but he has been. He was a, doing a radio man. commentary, but yeah. he was absolutely, uh, he, he was absolutely ecstatic. And, and you know, uh, people had said, it's, it's that kind of weird thing. I remember um, years ago, Mark Lawrenson saying to me that, uh, that, you know, up in Newcastle, oh, they prefer to win the cup, you know, than the league. And I, I thought this was kind of lunacy. Yeah. Yeah. No, but um, I think there was a little bit about that. Some of the Pats players had said during the week that when they won the league last year, uh, some of their fans would have traded it for the cup, and um, and you'd have believed that when you saw the reaction to it yesterday out there. I saw Keith Fahey uh, said after as well. It'll give you less to talk about next yeah, time. Which yeah, made yeah. It sound as though he was chippy as ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was kind of funny. Yeah, um, yeah. None of the you know. Not, yeah, he 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 was a little bit. He was he, he <laughs> uh, having a very 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 minor pop, you know. But uh, it. Do you know what? It became a bit of a bear trap for us as well because it was such it was such a, a, an incredible statistic um, that I, I, f- I found it increasingly difficult to uh, write about the the build up to the, com- the, the 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 match over the last week. With Without mentioning it, and yeah, like everybody knew it by the end. It was quite a almost a boring start, and, and yet you know it wasn't a conversation that went by with anybody from Pats or Derry for that matter, where it didn't come up. You know, and um, uh, these things. I, it's a strange thing. I mean, obviously in in football, you, you, uh, the once once a, a run. Uh, kind of runs beyond uh, the, the players who are actually at the club at a given time, mm. it becomes something of an irrelevance, really. And in League of Ireland terms, nobody's anywhere for more than two or three years in the current yeah. climate, you know, when, when contracts run so short. Um, so I think for a lot of the players, it was kind of water off a duck's back. But uh, for the rest of us, it was uh, become obsessional and certainly for their supporters. Yeah, it's an interesting point because this is the conversation we have every year, every second year. Mayo qualify for an All Ireland final yeah. and don't win it. And the question, I mean, clearly, none of those guys were around even in the 90s when yeah. the, the team were losing finals so technically it shouldn't bother them at all but sometimes it can become a thing around a club or around a scene maybe it's just a media driven element more than anything I, else I suspect it's different in, in Gaelic football or hurling or whatever because for a start I mean all of their, for a start all the players are tied to that to, to the county so they're playing their entire careers with them you know so they would have a, a far greater longevity but invariably, they all grow up as, as fans of that county. So, you know, they have a history and, they, you know, as long as their life goes by, probably listening to their parents talking about, you know, uh, um, you know the last male success, whatever. Um, in, in League of Ireland terms, I mean, particularly since the, the bust um, five years ago, um, clubs are operating year to year in terms of contracts, a lot of movement between teams. It's stop. It's changing back again slightly. A lot of movement in the last week in terms of uh, in terms of players being re-signed to the same clubs again. Uh, a little bit of money there again. A little bit of uh, at least enough to provide a bit of certainty in terms of budgets for next year. So players getting signed earlier. Um, but what you had with Pats, I think, was the fans on the one hand, the people in, in involved in the club on another, but also the, the players themselves who were fans of the clubs, um, the likes of Ian Birmingham, um, Gerard Bryan, uh, these guys who, who who'd grown up. Supporting Supporting Pats and, and and you could really see how much it meant to them. Certainly, uh, in terms of the occasion itself, there was seventeen thousand thirty eight people there. Is that a, a disappointing crowd? Or I mean, is yeah, I look. I mean, I, I, 
you know, hands up here. If that was a, 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 an international game mm. and they declared that crowd, I'd be very sceptical. And I was pretty sceptical yesterday. I didn't think... Oh, you, you think I it was think, short I, of... The... I didn't think there were 17,000 people there. But maybe, like, I mean, maybe I'm so consistently on the sceptical side here. Maybe I'm just not very good at estimating the crowd in um, Lansdowne Road. But I, but I, I like, once again, found myself sitting there kind of trying to work out what's in each tier and, you know, where the seats were. Um, you can never see what's under you in the West End. And, yeah. I, and I think that's probably the, the, the you know, the... the A lot the, of people... The, most heavily populated yeah. um, but it didn't look like 17,000 to me certainly uh, and it was a disappointing crowd it was a different disappointing atmosphere that said Derry City I talked to people up in Derry City on, on Thursday Friday they were very very confident about bringing um, 70 buses and 8,000 people or whatever um, I, I'm, I'm not sure but it, 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 it didn't strike me as a triumph crowd wise I mean the problem with it is is that it's not actually a bad crowd really for a game but it, it doesn't look like a good crowd in a stadium that big so no there, it doesn't, it doesn't. and they're caught they're, they're they're kind of between a rock and a hard place here. I mean, it's it's a good crowd in a league where you know the average crowd is fifteen hundred, two thousand. Where a bigish crowd is three, four thousand. A great crowd is five. You know, so you're talking about um, three, four times um, what's what's considered a very good crowd for a league game. So. Christ, if you applied that across leagues across Europe, you know you'd, you'd be um, you'd be kind of talking um, you'd be talking kind of Rio in in fifties. <laughs> um, but uh, but it, but it's yeah, you know it, it's difficult uh, because it is they, they. I mean, they're just obsessed with not turning anybody away, um, so they don't want to have it in a small stadium where they where 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 they sell out. And it's been a bit hit and miss over in in in, in Lansdowne Road over the last few years. I mean, they have had a crowd of what, thirty five thousand three four years ago. Um, so there's always that they're they're never quite kind of able to call it. They have to commit to the game being in in, in uh, the Aviva for contractual reasons. They now include it in a whole bunch of offers on on season tickets and all that sort of stuff. So they're sort of tied into it. Whatever return that gets them, I'm not entirely sure. But 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 it does mean that they're 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 tied to having it there. I think it has the potential to be a great occasion. I think for the players, it's a great reward for making it to the final for the fans that do turn up. But but it does rob it of some of the atmosphere. All right. We mentioned Keith Fahey there. Uh, how important a role has he played for Pat since he's come I back? I think from he's England? been great. I, I mean, I, I you know I think you'd have to talk to players about how much he's contributed behind the scenes. But the impression you get from them is that uh, in those in, in in that sort of way of things that a player like that who's played at such a high level who's who's uh, seen you know what what goes on at, um, at at clubs in England or whatever brings a lot of experience uh, and a, li- a lot of perspective to to the team. I think that rubs off on other players. I think they're impressed by having him around. And um, and I think you know, I mean, obviously Keith had his problems with injuries and had probably um, robbed in, robbed him initially of the chance to go back into the English game at the at the kind of level that he would have wanted to. But you do see that he's this is a guy who's made a choice. He's made you know he's shown more commitment. It's it's not like he was kind of you know, um, really hanging on to kind of playing for an extra year or two. Um, he's come back. He's made a commitment to the club. And he's contributed a lot there, and I think he's he's, he's been a really he's been a really great sign for them. I was quite struck by uh, his comments in the build up to the game when mm. he was asked about the league that he's in, the the League of Ireland compared to the Premier League where he's played, and uh, it was quite easy to bat that away and say, "Oh, yeah. everyone's doing a great job." So, but what he said was, "Look, you know, it's, it's not much has changed since I left. Some some of the facilities look like they haven't had a lick of." paint. Yeah. Everybody talks about the changes that need to happen, but um, but they don't actually happen. I'm wondering, with a guy of that stature saying that, is that any more likely to have any resonance? That, uh, will Keith Fahey making those comments 
actually achieve anything? I don't know. I mean, it's probably a decade or so since the FAI did an audit audit of, uh, I think it was under Fran Rooney, did an audit of the, the League of Ireland grants and uh, and tried to weigh up how much it would cost to kind of sort them out to a kind of, you know, reasonable extent to so turn them into um, far, you know, overhauled um, facilities that people would be keener to go to. And I think the figure they came up with at the time was something like, you know, um, an initial 18 million and really to get it to where they wanted to be, 33 million, something like that. Right. Very little of that money's been spent. I mean, you know, very little has changed with the grants. I'm writing about the the game for for twenty odd years now, and uh, even in that time, some of the some of the grants are relatively unchanged. If I um, was saying what what he didn't seem to think it would cost a fortune, the kind of stuff he was talking about, he mentioned one dressing room museum where the draw the showers, the draw and the showers were scalding hot and coming yeah. out at all sorts. Of, and that's it's a fairly basic requirement. There, 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 there are lots of basic requirements, yeah. and I used to bring my kids to games, and uh, and they would you know not want to use the toilets because they were so grim and and I think the problem for, for the league has been in that time that a lot of else has moved on you know you've had the cinema industry for instance completely overhauled you know and uh, you know a lot of new cineplexes very modern facilities I mean if they're serious about being in the entertainment industry um, then then they, they have to be competing and, and you know uh, on a par with those sort of things if they want to stick with that, the, the kind of hardcore football support that's fine but what we've seen over the last 20 years is that that, that, that audience has steadily, steadily dwindled um, I, I think what you do have is a whole bunch of exceptional cases. So in, in Drada's, it's that like for pretty much the entirety of that 20 years, Drada have been about to move out of United Park, you know, wherever they were going to go. And I think you get in in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a league where so many of the clubs are sort of hand-to-mouth operations. Um, you get a situation where they don't want to spend a penny uh, on, on kind of maintenance on the ground that they think is going to be gone in a year or two. Uh, but Drada did go through a real boom up there. They spent a lot of money, partly on the basis that they were going to move as a property-related deal or whatever, but they spent an awful lot of money on, on, on the first team, and that's what you tend to see over and over again. Clubs around the country expending a lot of money on first-team players, going through a good phase um, in terms of success on the field or whatever, and time after time we see them fail to address the infrastructural issues that, 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 that are big challenges for them. Given these kind of chronic economic problems that there are, is, is Fahey being unduly negative when he talks about this? Is it not a case of... No, well, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I don't think you can argue with that. I don't think... Uh, I mean, one of the reasons for the switch to summer football um, was essentially to, sh- to, to, to shortcut all of that, you know, like that, that there was so much money required um, to make, uh, to essentially weatherproof these grounds, again, you know, for, for winter football to make them attractive to audiences, that an easier way to go to it was simply to switch to better weather. Uh, and that's fine. That, that's, you know, that, 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 that served its purpose in some way, but we haven't seen an increase in, in, in crowds particularly. Um, they're still struggling to attack. I mean, they have... The, you know, major demographics are missing here. There are very few women at games. There are, there are very few, um, you know, post-teens. Um, they lose their audience very young. I mean, I remember bringing a, a, a friend of my daughter's to a match in, in, in the old Belfield Park and him wandering around um, and, and saying that this was, you know, slightly kind of wide-eyed and, and awestruck and saying that this was the second best stadium um, he'd ever been in. And I was asking what the first was and it was Old Trafford. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so like a kids at a certain level, they just view these things all on kind of one level and they're footballers and you see them running around looking for autographs or whatever but a lot of them a lot of them move beyond that partly because of cynicism of parents or, or classmates or whatever the, that the might be The thing that you say there you know losing the audience post-teens is, is kind of interesting it's like a colleague of ours uh, Daniel McDonald. I read a thing he'd written last week talking about his love of Dundalk yeah. and how it had uh, <laughs> kind of was an obsession that had begun in, when he was I think aged about 10 and then had kind of 
he'd never been able to shake. Yeah. Um, I mean, my first my first experience with Dan McDonald was him emailing me here at the paper as a fan, like, you know, complaining yeah. about coverage or complaining about something I'd written about. You're biased, you're anti, anti yeah, yeah, bias. exactly, yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, it was familiar to me, this kind of process that he described. Um, and, I mean, for instance, I remember the big face on that guy celebrating, you know, the kid on the field after, after Dundalk won again. And you kind of see a, an image like this kid's face uh, and you think this guy has to be a fan for life, but apparently this isn't really the case. Why think, do you think that is? I think, at, you know, look, I mean, there, there are a variety of problems here. I think, you know, one of the things is that in Dublin, it's a very Dublin-based league, disproportionately represented in terms of clubs, and yet um, the, the, the league is quite badly lost in a city this size when um, the crowds are, are as, as small as they are. I mean, St. Pat's um, might have had whatever, five, 7,000 there. Yes, as I say, I'm not entirely sure if they had half, half the official crowd, they had 8,000 there. Um, but, you know, they've had league game. I've been at league games this year when where they were going quite well. Or last year, I think I went to a, a game up there where, where when they were leading the league and on the way to winning a title, um, they had barely 1,000 people. Uh, I lived in Inchicore for a long time. I mean, there is, there, there is a, a really good buzz up around there in the in, in, in the kind of geographically tight community um, when Pats are going well. It's a place where you really feel the impact of it, but they draw their support from, from further afield. And, and, you know, if... if if you go, you know, into the in, into the bigger suburbs of of um, Southwest Dublin, um, there just generally isn't that real feel for it. Uh, kids over a certain age they move on to supporting wh- whether it be Manchester United or the Dubs or whatever, uh, and League of Ireland uh, gets lost in that. And the and the ones who the, the kids who retain um, an interest in it. I think feel kind of isolated. It becomes a, it becomes so, more of a kind of solo. Socially embarrassing. Well, I, look, you know, I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm not crazy about the, the term, but that's essentially it's not something that that becomes a point of exchange. I mean, it's not a kind of water cooler thing how Pat's did, um, or certainly something that you can assume that in 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 wider company. You know, you have your mates who support the League of Ireland. You probably have a wider circle of mates who support an English club or something like that. I think that's different in Dundalk or Sligo or or. You know, possibly Cork, um, where there is a, a, a greater kind of um, identification with a local club as as representing a geographical thing. I think um, Des Cowles always kind of used to argue uh, that uh, League of Ireland clubs should wear county colours or whatever. And uh, like, uh, I I don't personally agree, but I can see the point he's making that what you're trying to do is instill a, more of a geographical representation element to it. You know, and mm. and sometimes sometimes at its worst. Um, uh, and I, I speak as a fan of, of League of Ireland generally, but as is, at its worst, the League of Ireland seems sometimes to um, to pluck um, the kind of uh, most ludicrous elements of of, of geography out of, out of a hat. Um, I remember uh, as a freelance journalist many years ago going to uh, cover a game um, between Monaghan United and. Um, uh, Shamrock Rovers and travelling up in the Monaghan United bus from Dublin, you know, for the game, uh, taking a hitch and lift with them and hitching one back with Shamrock Rovers. Both teams rolled into town a couple of hours before the game, went to different hotels for, for sandwiches, then played and both teams wheeled back. I remember talking to Jonathan Douglas is from Monaghan. He he broke through into the team as a, as a young lad there and he had to train with a local schoolboy club during the week because Monaghan United actually trained in Dublin, you know. So um, there, there, are, there are problems there. There are a lot of problems 
was there. But, you know, there are, there are obviously a, a, a lot of positives too. And, and in terms of, um, you know, that St. Pat's team yesterday, there, there is, as I say, in Inchcore, uh, um, uh, um, an identification with it. There were several um, fan, several ki- players who had been fans of uh, of the club as, as kids, and so you see some sort of shift in that. Yeah, huge day for them. This Emmett, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. The hairdryer is, is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by various blasts of temper. The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, no, he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Yeah, I do think Keith Fahey came to go back to his uh, the, the point that kickstarted that conversation about the I guess the standards and facilities and the popularity of of the League of Ireland where it's at at the moment. It, it's absolutely fair enough for Fahey to say that. I think you know, it, well, certainly we'd be a bit hypocritical sitting here saying that we would always love it more honestly from players, and then when they're asked something and they give an interesting answer because it's an easy one to dead bat. It's an easy one to say, ah, oh, yeah, you know, it, it's 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 all grand. But uh, I think he was trying to be constructive as well mm. by the sounds of things. It seemed like he probably wanted to raise that. Uh, he's been to the Premier League. He might as well talk about not that there's any ever going to be any comparison, but he might as well talk about at least the basic requirements that he feels Keith Fahey also is not a guy who's he's not a diplomat right you know what I mean he's not like a, he's not a guy who says stuff to please to please people or really? keep them happy no uh, I mean oftentimes he doesn't say anything at all because he just hates talking to the media you know <laughs> he thinks it's a, well that was certainly the impression few years back. he always gave as an Ireland international um, you know he, there were things he'd rather be doing but you know than he, talking to the media yeah, but he's not the kind of he's not the kind of guy who's going to give you an answer that he thinks. Oh, you know, he'll he'll say what he thinks. Um, he always struck me as that, as that kind of guy. Uh, often would give very short responses to questions. He's the kind of player who could leave you somewhat at a loss for words. You know, if you ask some questions after a match. You kind of open the player talks for a little bit in response to you've each maybe got, You've maybe got three or four questions in your head, but you're how thinking you think that'll just kick things off. How do you think it went for you out there tonight, Keith? Fine. <laughs> you know, you're kind of like... Wes Hoolan is a little like that. Wes oh, Hoolan's totally, totally, a serious yeah. dead batter. He was after playing that game against Gibraltar. Uh, well done, Wes. Brilliant stuff. And he he, he did that, that trick, a very media-trained looking trick where he didn't answer any of the questions. He just yeah. gave his own... So, well done, Wes. You played very well. And then it's like... Yeah, I'm looking forward to the next game. It'll be tough yeah. in Germany. Oh, yeah, uh, you know, we just got to look forward to the next game. It'll be good. You know, and he, he um, sometimes he'll just repeat your own question back. If it's if it's an innocuous one, he'll just repeat it back. And if it's a if it's a one where he can see that it might result in a well, whereas you look pretty angry to be substituted today by Martin O'Neill, uh, then that's when he'll say, "I'm looking forward to the next game." <laughs> you know what I mean? ESPN's John Bruin joins us now to chat about the Manchester derby. John, one point from two games now for Manchester United against Chelsea and Man City. I know there were some extenuating circumstances with the sending off yesterday, but they've only scored one goal in those two games. Why is it, do you think, that it seems to me anyway, um, if I'm right in saying it, that Louis van Gaal is escaping any sort of serious critique despite the fact that his results are pretty disastrous? Yes. Um, The results are disastrous. I mean, the, the statistic, isn't it, that Ron Atkinson was sacked for such a run of results back in the 1986-7 season and that brought in Alex Ferguson. Um, I suppose that there are signs of recovery, but the, the the results just aren't turning over. It's a disjointed team. It's a squad that, well, despite the aforementioned Ferguson's protestations, needed a, 
a total remix. It didn't get it in the proper fashion. Um, speak just hearing that uh, Van Hal actually did want to buy some defenders, um, but didn't get them. Uh, yet, it's very strange, isn't it, that a, a the most expensively assembled team that's ever played in a Premier League match, I think that was two to two hundred forty million, ends up with a, a right back who's actually a winger, um, one actual left back who I think cost ten million more than City's defence cost, um, and then you've got uh, Patrick Munair, a converted midfielder himself. And uh, Michael Carrick, who has played 15 years as a midfielder, only recently become a centre-back. In fact, playing his first game in May. Um, the problems... At a certain point, Van Gaal is going to have to start turning around results. Yet, I do think that most would recognise that uh, the certain things that he had to put right haven't been put right. Perhaps they belong to the board. Um, and, and as for Van Gaal himself... I think the fact that he has such a track record of success and he is so confident in himself, that does tend to win people over. Yeah, very confident himself and very, uh, I guess, uh, so far anyway, we know he can be combustible with the media and he maybe had a bit of a go at smalling through the media yesterday, but so far he hasn't presented himself as a man under pressure. He hasn't been getting particularly irritable yet. I don't, I don't know if I should be surprised by this, but you're almost waiting for, after one or two bad results, something to something to maybe happen publicly. But he seems to be handling himself pretty well so far. Yeah, I mean, the thing is with, with Van Hal's press conferences, I think in a strange way, he perhaps gets away with the fact that his grasp of English is not fantastic. He gets his message across. Uh, but, I mean, if you watch the Friday press conference... Uh, he's asked a question about Adnan Yanisai, and uh, he said, "This is personally." No, he means this is that's personal, um, and he he just doesn't want to refer to individual players. Um, in the case of Smalling, he just is able to say, "That's it. It was stupid," but he doesn't dig out players. Um, he has his own way of dealing with the media, which means that the question answer sessions are not. They don't. Sort of, you know, with David Moyes last season, for example. They would sort of Moyes would come up with an answer which you know sounded like it lacked credibility, and people would build the press conference from there almost. Van Hal's lack of English means that I mean he speaks English, but not in a way that you and I would recognise. It just means that there is no sort of flow to the press conferences. I'd be interested to see if journalists at a certain point, and I think this may have to happen this Friday, start to ask, well, when are you going to start turning around results? That might be the point that we see a different Van Gaal. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier that, that there are some signs of improvement, but, you know, if this is the most expensive team ever fielded, they've, they've spent huge money on uh, several, you know, hopefully world-class players. The £241 million that um, this team cost yesterday doesn't even include Juan Mata and Ander Herrera, who was sitting watching the whole thing uh, from the bench. This is less than the bare minimum than should have been expected. So is it a question of reputation, really, protecting money? Does this show the power of managerial reputation? I mean, if you've got a reputation for being a great manager, you can get away with any rubbish. Yes, but I suppose the question is how long you can get away with that rubbish. Um, I think Van Gaal is helped a little by the fact that other teams around him or... It seems that if essentially are competing for the same thing as him, 
which is a place in the Champions League for next season, are suffering similar, if not quite as... Uh, I mean, I don't know, you'd say Liverpool were having just as bad a season. Spurs certainly are. Everton are. They're the teams competing probably for that fourth place now that we probably think that Arsenal have found some type of gear. Um, I don't know. It, the Van Gaal thing is strange. He does seem to have a command at the moment. Um if you actually speak to, I was speaking to some of the fans last night. Some are beginning to lose patience, um, but of course, the fans at matches don't tend to show displeasure. Manchester United fans are not really known for that. If you think about the way the way they treated Moyes, um, it's interesting, isn't it? He, the reputation does seem to have got him so far, um, but it can't continue for much longer. They play Crystal Palace at the weekend. If they don't get a victory, then then the crisis banners have got to go up, really. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking, I suppose, about the losing side in this game. Manchester City managed to, to get things together again after a run of bad results. Um, but I have to say that the last 20 minutes of that game was uh, would have been embarrassing, almost, I imagine, for the, for the Manchester City fans in that stadium. How did they manage to lose control of the game um, to such an extent against an, an opponent? They seem to be, they seem to have total control of the game at 70 minutes. Manchester United down to 10 men, only going to be one winner. And at the end, United had to had to miss several chances for City to get away with it. Well, I think I think chatting to people at the game, um, the the, the crucial change there was James Milner. Now, a, a much underrated player. In fact, he's so underrated that he's probably rated <laughs> by quite a lot of people. Uh, and and I would be one of those people. Now, I think Milner might actually have had an injury, but he brought on Sami Nasri, not the character you probably want to have to help you dig in for victory. Um, also, Sami Nasri, uh, and this is a particular Pellegrini habit, uh, is not fit. Now, Pellegrini's strategy, I'm told, is to get players to gain their fitness by playing in matches. Uh, this is part of the reason we think is why Sergio Aguero picks up so many injuries. Um, so, United got into the game because Milner had been pinning them back on that particular flank. Uh, there's probably a little bit more to it than that. City are a team playing of that confidence. Uh, David Silva and Aguero have been carrying the team for a while. Silva wasn't playing. Aguero himself, I would say, is not 100% fit, despite the fact that he scored so many goals. At this point, um, City are relying on... Well, they're very much leaning on, on Aguero this season. Torre was a little better than he has been in recent weeks. Uh, but he himself went missing towards the end of the game. Um I think there's a there's a confidence problem at City there. Um, Pellegrini is a manager who I'm not sure if you would have him down as a motivator of men. Um, and they've got other distractions. I mean, the CSK Moscow games coming up and stuff like that. There's, there's several things have gone wrong for City this season that perhaps didn't this time last season. Even though you look at the records and they're not that dissimilar, um, and maybe. I think if you actually look at the derby overall, if you compare it to the game this time last season, I think when City won 4-1, the difference is that City are a team in far lesser form and United are in slightly better form than they were, I think that was in September last year. It seems, uh, it's interesting, you said there that he, Pellegrini, plays players, plays wants them to play their way back to fitness on the field. So as, so as soon as the injury's cleared up, they pretty much want, he wants them out there rather than what I would say, would say would be a more modern sports science idea of really training, really being close to full fitness by the time you come back. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and certain managers have certain ideas about these things. I think, what's our Dutch friend called? Raymond Verheyen. Yes, I'm sure he might have several ideas about this. Yeah. Um, if, if you look at City's injury record over the last, since Pellegrino is in charge, um, you would notice that several players have played, have returned to the team and then broken down with injury. Uh, the one that stands out for me, actually, is Negredo, a player who no longer is at the club. Uh, Negredo last season uh, picked up a shoulder injury and then they played him in a match at West Ham in a League Cup time, which they were already winning 6-0. And Negredo got another injury there and, of course, has never, was never really been seen again. Um, so this seems to be Pellegrini's strategy. Um, several managers have that idea, don't they? If the player's fit to play, then, you know, he just plays. Um, I'm not sure quite what City's sports science department would have to say about that. Just I, I saw um, an article today by Barney Roney uh, in The Guardian talking about this and drawing the comparisons between this match, which of course is between the champions of the Premier League for the last four seasons. Um, they've shared the, the title between them. Um, and the recent uh, games between Barcelona and Real Madrid and Dortmund, uh, Bayern and Dortmund, saying that the level just is it's, it's much lower. I mean, he was claiming that, in fact, the the sort of TV broadcasters of English football no longer push the line that this is the best league in the world. And I, I, I'm not sure, I can't remember if, I mean, you sort of, it's sort of the phrase that you tune out anyway. I don't know if, I can't remember if they still even call it that, but it looks as though um, if these are the elite sides in the Premier League, and okay, the table doesn't say that they are, um, then it's, it's, it's fallen a long way behind the elite teams in the other competitions. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think that... The, the, one, one person sticking to that message, though, and that's Harry Kane, who, uh, after scoring for Spurs, said that this was the best league in the world. So I think Harry probably receives a congratulatory text from the Premier League's people. Um, yeah, I mean, I watched the Dortmund game Saturday and uh, the dortmund Bayern game. The level was so far ahead of mm. that the next day. Um, the speed with which they play. Um, the same goes for Real Madrid, Barcelona. I think. I think the issue is that. I mean, I, th- I think was it a couple of years ago somebody said that. The, the, who was it that said that the, the the Premier League has the world's best attacking players, which is patently not true, considering that most of them play in either Madrid or Barcelona. I can't think of a, a Premier League player who would get into a combined Real Madrid Barcelona. Team. I mean, would you know? I mean, Messi, Neymar, Suarez. There isn't a player in the Premier League as good as any of those guys. No, but what about defensively though? I mean, you know, maybe somebody like Company or somebody like that, you know. But really, you sort of you are clutching at such straws, aren't you? Um, and it, it's borne out by English teams' performances in the Champions League as well, which have really dropped off. We almost have to look at Chelsea's 2012 triumph, which we attended to be almost a fluke. Um, the reasons for this are, I would suppose, that Real and Barcelona are able to pay the big wages, as are Bayern. Um, and let's, if we think that the best best attacking players in the world tend to be South American, uh, that means that the best South American players are going to Spain, or in the case of Aguero or somebody like that, they're going to the clubs that pay the highest money. Now, the thing is with Aguero, he's in my opinion, these days, now that Suarez has gone easily the best striker in the Premier League, I think that's a fairly facile thing to say. How long 
might he stay in England if one of those clubs came knocking? Uh, he surely, surely would want to play in those leagues. You think so? Listen, John, we'll leave it there. Great stuff. Thanks, Mill. Cheers. I say I'm a million percent. That is better than a hundred percent. What do you think of John's point there, Ken, about James Milner? He's becoming this... John didn't use Steve Finnan as this example, but yeah. it's the most obvious Irish example. Steve Finnan, the most underrated fullback in the league, uh, or whatever position Finnan was playing at the time. And it was said so often that he became the most overrated, underrated player, but he was, uh, he was, he was very good. But James Milner, similar? Yeah. Everyone talks, he's the fashionable, underrated guy in this era? I think so too, and because he, he also uh, gives these sort of um, uh, flinty Yorkshire interviews now. Where, he, where he, he puts up philosophical questions like, you know, what's boring? I could be boring. <laughs> but yeah, there he was talking about the boring Milner account, you know? Yeah. There's a boring Milner Twitter account where, which just says boring things. Mm. And Milner's kind of like, you know, I'm not that boring. Uh, I don't know. I think, he's a, I think he's a kind of a good, solid player. But he's also, you'd have to say, one of the few English reference points in that Manchester City team. And while I'm not suggesting this is necessarily the case, uh, as regards Milner, it is, I think, definitely true that English players do tend to get a slightly more favourable press than foreign players at, at big, at particularly big English clubs. He gave a very good interview years ago to David Walsh. I'm almost certain this was James Milner. Let's go with it again. Yeah. Because um, that's, that's... Who I've, else could it I've have started been? the point, yeah. It was definitely yeah. James Milner. Maybe We're going to go with Barton this. Or... And Milner, well, Walsh was unbelievably impressed with him. Just his his outlook, his, uh, his manners, these kind of things. Uh, one of the topics of conversation was, you know, Miller was a, a bit of a prodigy, you know, huge... He's a serious prodigy. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's still the youngest player to score in the league. Like, he broke Rooney's record quite soon after Rooney it, became the youngest player to score in the league. It was Miller, because I remember now, he said he played with Rooney, and then suddenly Rooney disappeared. I uh, played against Rooney at that age group, and then he said, suddenly, everyone knew Wayne Rooney, he was running rings around us, yeah. and suddenly he just disappeared off the scene, and then we realised, oh, he's in the Everton first team yeah. uh, very shortly after. But Milner was, was equally uh, as, as prodigious in a lot of ways, uh, and talked a lot about his relationship with his dad and how, um, how it was all very positive towards his father. He was very good. But he just felt afterwards, oh, he actually rang Walsh up and he said, I hope it didn't come across that, I was, that my dad is some sort of you know, harsh taskmaster. I, he just, he did want the Earl best. Woods type. Yeah, exactly. So he was just a bit concerned that he'd maybe made his dad sound like a little bit along those lines. And Walsh was like, that was definitely the first time a footballer has ever called me to make sure that... Oh, I, yeah. David Walsh evidently never did an interview with Thierry Henry. Apparently he's mad for calling people up and setting them straight about what really, really? happened. Really? In that interview, yeah, he's, he's so he he's, does the interview, and then the interview is out there, and then he rings up and says, "That's not." Yeah, he's uh, this is a lot of rubbish. What you've written here is totally off. Yeah. Um, just looking at this Real Madrid new stadium. Have you seen the story? Yeah. Apparently, um, uh, well, essentially, Real Madrid are, are getting a new set. Well, they're doing up the Bernabeu for three uh, three hundred fifty million pound uh, deal. Oh yeah, to, wasn't to, there? To there was a vote about whether to move. Oh, yeah, I could be wrong on that. Actually, well, now they're gonna. It looks as though they're going to essentially renovate the one and what they're doing is applying this kind of uh, metallic exterior uh, it's like what they've come up with looks a little bit like a giant George Foreman grill <laughs> um, covered in a sort of chrome that does look like a George Foreman grill it's like a George Foreman grill you could just lift you can see top the top off look at the angle of it you can see the way that's where the fat the, would drip yeah, off that drips down the down the, they're yeah. missing a tray though unfortunately that fat is dripping right onto the road and right, right onto the people beneath it's dangerous uh, 
But yeah, that's the and, and apparently this is all being paid for by a company uh, which is headed up by Sheikh Mansour, the owner of Manchester City, uh, which is nice. That's uh, the end of proceedings for today. Have a listen to the first show we have out there. We had a look ahead to the November internationals, particularly the first game against South Africa uh, with Bernard Jackman and Jerry Thorny. And Keith Duggan talked to us about Rory Gallagher, who's been appointed as Donegal manager in succession to Jim McGuinness. Gallagher was the well, he was the assistant for the first few years in McGuinness reign, uh, not for the last year, but he's taking over as the top man. So we had a good chat with Keith Duggan on that. You can check out our website, secondcaptains.com. Thanks very much for listening today. Thank you again. Thank you too. And we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 